0: Amen. Well, I invite you to take your copy of Scripture and turn to Acts chapter 13, Acts chapter 13. And uh, this morning, we will be looking at verses 1 through 3, Acts chapter 13. And if you're using one of the Bibles that we provide for you uh, in your chair or pew, if you're sitting up in the balcony, uh, you'll find our passage on page 921, 921. Acts chapter 13, and I'll begin reading for us in verse 1. This is God's Word. Now, there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menaean, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. Amen. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we are so grateful for the grace and mercy that you have shown us in Jesus Christ. And we confess this morning that it is our song. It is what we love to remember and to celebrate and to sing. And, Father, we pray that as we turn to Your Word now, that that song would ring loud in our hearts. And, Father, that we might be compelled to share that good news with others. So, Father, come now by Your Spirit and lead us and guide us as we look to Your Word. And it's through Jesus Christ, our Lord, we pray. Amen. Well, this is a big Sunday for Ellie Paul Hill and Ellie Nelson. And it is a big Sunday for us as a church, Crawford Avenue Baptist Church. Uh, I want you to think back just over the last several months. And uh, it's remarkable what the Lord has done and is doing among us. Uh, on April 30th, 2023, we commissioned Kyle and Bethany, a family in our congregation, to work with Wycliffe Bible Translators in West Africa to do Bible translation and to be invested in a local church there in the ministry and outreach of that church. And then just a month later, on May 28, 2023, we commissioned Kathy, another member of our congregation, to return to Southeast Asia with the International Mission Board and to minister among the unreached deaf people in that region of the world. And then this morning, just about three months later, August twenty seventh, two 2023, we commissioned Ellie and Ellie, two members of our church, to go with reaching and teaching to Southeast Asia to teach English and to minister in the context of a local church there. My friends, this is the work of the Lord among us, and we should rejoice We can testify this morning that each one of these missionaries that we are sending out from our local church is God's answer to years of praying and seeking Him. As many of you know, we are in an extended series right now in our mission statement. Our mission as a church is to glorify God by making disciples who enjoy, live, and proclaim the gospel. And over the next several months, we're going to focus on the theme of proclaiming the gospel as we look at Paul's first missionary journey in Acts chapters 13 and 14. About a month ago, uh, Stephen Story, our executive pastor who gave the announcements this morning, uh, he announced that both of the Ellie's had reached full support for this two-year mission stint that they're going to be going on and that their last Sunday here with us at Crawford would be August 27th. And so when I heard that news that they had reached full support, that we were going to be able to send them out, I was thrilled. And then I got to thinking, well, what am I going to be preaching that Sunday? And so I opened up my Excel spreadsheet, you know, where I have my sermon schedule laid out, and I looked at August 27th, and it was Acts chapter 13, verses 1 to 3, where the church in Antioch, lays hands on Paul and Barnabas, and sends them out in their missionary endeavors. And so, praise God for the way he orchestrated that. And I am eager to share with you this morning what the Lord has to say to us from our text. Because this is a big morning for both of the Ellie's, and it is a big morning for us here at Crawford Avenue. And in these opening verses in Acts chapter 13, we see both the commissioning of Paul and Barnabas, which is significant, but we also at the same time see the role that the church in Antioch played in that commissioning, in identifying, and in assessing, and commissioning, and sending forth these two men. In this way, the church in Antioch models for us the relationship that god intends to exist to exist between the local church and missionaries and so my friends we want to be a church like this we want to be a church like the church in antioch in acts chapter 13 we want to be a sending church and so this morning i want us to see in our text four marks of a sending church four marks of ascending church. And as we consider these four marks, let's just be praying that the Lord would work these marks into our existence, into our life and culture here at Crawford Avenue. And the marks are these. The church in Antioch was a diverse church. The church in Antioch was a teaching church. It was a worshiping church, and it was a giving church. So those are the four marks. Diverse, teaching, worshiping, and giving. So, first of all, let's consider that the church in Antioch was a diverse church. Look there in verse 1. Now, there were in the church in Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menaean, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. Now, there is a lot that we can learn about the church in Antioch from just this one verse. Uh, But let's let's just start by giving some attention here to who these men are that are listed here in verse 1. So, first of all, you see there Barnabas. Now, earlier in Acts chapter 4, verse 36, we learned that Barnabas was a Levite from Cyprus. Now, given that he was a Levite, that means he was a Jew and he was from the tribe of Levi, which was a priestly tribe. He was also from the island of Cyprus. Cyprus is an island in the Mediterranean Sea, so he was not from Israel proper. So, that means that Barnabas was a Jew, but he was also one who was familiar with, say, Greek culture and language. We also learn from Acts chapter 11 That the apostles in Jerusalem had sent Barnabas to Antioch, and that Barnabas had played a very important role in the establishment and development of this church in Antioch. Now, notice the second man that's mentioned here in verse 1 is Simeon, Simeon who was also called Niger. Niger means black, and most assume that Simeon was a black man from Africa. Third, you see there Lucius of Cyrene. Lucius is a Latin name, and so this man was probably very familiar with Roman culture. He was also from Cyrene. Cyrene is an area in Libya, so he would have been from North Africa. The fourth man that's listed there is Menaean. Luke tells us that he was a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch. Now, when you read through The Gospels, and you read in Acts, you'll see the name Herod come up. The Herodian dynasty was pretty large. There were any number of different Herods that were a part of the Herodian dynasty. But the Herod that's referred to here is the son of Herod the Great. And this Herod that's referred to here was responsible for beheading John the Baptist. Luke tells us that Menaean was a lifelong friend of Herod, this Herod who had beheaded John the Baptist. So, Manan was accustomed to rubbing shoulders with royalty. And then the fifth individual that's listed here is Saul. Of course, this is the Apostle Paul. We could say much about Paul. He was a Jew by way of his own testimony. We learned that he was a Hebrew of Hebrews. He was a Pharisee. He was a religious leader among the Jews. He persecuted the church. But then he was, as we read this morning in Acts 9 in the Scripture reader, he was radically converted by the grace of God and became a Christian missionary. We also know that Paul was from Tarsus, so like Barnabas, he was a Jew, but he was from an area which would have allowed him to be very accustomed to and acquainted with Greek culture. So these are the five men that are listed here. And consider now the city in which they find themselves. They find themselves in the city of Antioch. Antioch was considered to be the third most important city in the Roman Empire, just behind Rome and Alexandria. It was a large city of a population of about half a million, so that was a large city at that time. And the population included Jews, Asians, Greeks, Romans, people from all over the world. And so here you have the church in Antioch, it's located in a diverse city, and the members of the church in Antioch reflect that diversity. We see it in the list of these five men. We have men here who are Jews, we have men who are um, from Africa, North Africa, we have men who are uh, acquainted with Roman culture and Greek culture and so forth. And listen, my friends, one of the things that's interesting as we see the development of the church in Antioch was that this was not by accident. It didn't just kind of happen this way. In fact, if you go back to Acts chapter 11, Luke there records the founding of the church in Antioch. And what we read there in Luke chapter 11, verses 19 to 21, are these words. Now, those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen. So, originally the church was in Jerusalem. It was basically made up of Jews. Stephen is martyred and the church is scattered from Jerusalem. So now you have these Jewish Christians who are being pressed out of Jerusalem. And Luke records that they go as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch. Speaking the word, that is the gospel, to no one except Jews. So these Jews are pushed out of Jerusalem. They're believing and trusting in Jesus. And as they go to these other cities, they start telling other Jews about Jesus and about salvation in Jesus because this is who they know. This is the people. They have a similar cultural ethnic identity with them and so they naturally start to tell them about Christ. But then Luke records in verse 20, but there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenist. The Hellenist here refers to Greek-speaking Gentiles. So of these Jews that are scattered, some of them, when they get to Antioch, they don't just tell fellow Jews about Christ. They say, look, this city is diverse. It's made of Romans and Greeks and North Africans and so forth. Let's tell them about Christ. Luke records, they were preaching to them the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. And so what we see here is that from the very beginning of this church in Antioch, from its very establishment, this church was characterized by a missionary zeal. From their inception, they were reaching out to people who were different than them, ethnically and culturally. They were willing to cross ethnic and cultural barriers to love and serve and minister to others. And no doubt this had a significant impact on then their ability later on to send out Paul and Barnabas to the nations. A C.T. Studd and British missionary once declared, quote, the light that shines farthest shines brightest at home. The light that shines farthest shines brightest at home. You see, long before the church in Antioch was making an impact globally, their light was shining brightly at home. They were making an impact locally. It's a very simple principle in many ways, but an important principle for us to remember that missions starts at home. And if we want to make an impact for the gospel globally, it starts here locally. This is, in fact, one of our desires, our ambitions here at Crawford Avenue is to possess an ethnic and cultural diversity that reflects the diversity of our city. That's not always easy. It normally doesn't happen overnight. But I believe it is something that we should pray for and we should work towards when we take advantage of opportunities to serve and reach out to individuals, even in our own neighborhood who are different than us, or to love and serve international students who are here in our city attending one of our local universities, we are starting to build a culture within our church in which we will be more inclined and equipped to then send those from our congregation to do a similar work overseas and in distant lands. Ascending churches are oftentimes identified by this characteristic that they're diverse churches because at home they are doing what they then intend to do overseas. They are crossing barriers ethnically, culturally, reaching out to those who are different than them, serving them, loving them, welcoming them in to the fellowship. Secondly, we see that the church in Antioch here is a teaching church. It's a teaching church. Look there in verse 1 again and we read these words. Now, there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menaean a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. You see that these five men here are identified in verse 1 as prophets and teachers. In fact, we learn in Acts chapter 11 that this is the very reason why Paul went to Antioch in the first place. And see, the church in Antioch, as we read earlier, was established by these disciples who came from Jerusalem, and they were sharing Christ. And the church is established, and then the church in Jerusalem sends Barnabas to Antioch to help the work there, and Barnabas is ministering in the church in Antioch. And then we read in Acts chapter 11 that Barnabas realizes as he's giving himself to this new work, these, these young converts, that he needs some help. And so in Acts chapter 11, verse 25 and 26, we read, So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul, that is, Paul the apostle. And when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year they met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. So here we see that Paul and Barnabas, early on in the life of the church at Antioch, they gave themselves, devoted themselves to teaching and instructing this young church in the Scriptures and in the Gospel. And no doubt the teaching ministry of Paul and Barnabas played a key role in the church in Antioch then becoming a faithful, sending church. We see this oftentimes That a truly effective sending church is a church that has been taught the Scriptures and is grounded in the Word of God. And of course this makes sense. Because it's through the teaching of God's Word that folks begin to understand the Gospel. It's through the teaching of God's Word that their depth of knowledge and love for the Gospel grows. It's through the teaching of God's Word that folks begin to see God's cosmic plan of redemption for all people through His Son, Jesus Christ. It's through the teaching of God's Word that folks fall in love with Christ's bride, the church, and gain a burden for lost souls. It's through the teaching of God's Word that we are relationally sanctified so that we might partner with others and minister to others and care for others in ways that are healthy and life-giving. And all of this is a process. All of this takes time. None of it happens overnight. But through the consistent teaching of God's word, a faithful, effective sending churches consistently laboring to build that biblical foundation upon which the missionary endeavors of the church can then be built and grow. Understand as well that at the heart of this ministry of faithfully teaching the Scriptures is the gospel of Jesus Christ. We see this as well in the church at Antioch. Going back again to the founding of the church in Acts chapter 11. In Acts 11 verse 19 and 20 we read, Now those who were scattered because of the persecution, there were some of them who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists also. Here it is, preaching the Lord Jesus. You see, this was the heart of the message of those early disciples who started to teach and preach in Antioch. The heart of their message, what they preached, what they taught, was, as Luke tells us here, the Lord Jesus. The heart of their message was not be a good person, the heart of their message was not love and care for the poor the heart of their message was not be inclusive. The heart of their message was not grow in your knowledge of the Bible. The heart of their message was not even be a missionary. All of those are good and wonderful things and we should teach and we should encourage those things, but the heart of their message and the heart of Christianity is Jesus Christ. His life, His death, His resurrection. This is the heart of Christianity because the heart of Christianity is not about us, but it is about Him. It's not what we can do to save ourselves, but what He has done to save us. The core of the Christian message is Jesus' perfect life, His substitutionary death on the cross, by which He bore the wrath of God on our behalf for the sake of our sins, and His resurrection from the dead through which we can have eternal life in the presence of God forever. My friend, if you're not a Christian, this is the central message of Christianity. And I encourage you this morning to turn from your sins and to trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, to submit to Him as Lord, and you can experience the life-transforming power of the gospel that created the church in Antioch, that changed and transformed the lives of Paul and the apostles changed the the world forever and made such an impact in the first century and even now today. Andy Johnson has this quote in his little book on missions. I love this quote, speaking about the centrality of the gospel in the teaching ministry of ascending church. Listen to what he writes, quote, "...the heart of God-glorifying mission starts with joy in the gospel." What this may mean is that the best way to encourage your church in missions is to stop talking about missions for a time and instead talk about the gospel. I've seen churches that have tried to get their members excited about missions without being excited about the gospel. The result is pitiful. Churches won't extend themselves to commend the gospel until they deeply cherish the gospel. End of quote. And that is so true. An effective, faithful, sending church is a church that teaches the Word of God and especially, especially relishes in and proclaims the gospel of Jesus Christ. Third, the church in Antioch was a worshiping church, was a worshiping church. Look there in verses two and three, and we read these words. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. Now it should be apparent to us here in verses 2 and 3 that the the church in Antioch had a heart for God. And that heart for God was expressed in worship, in fasting, and in prayer. Notice that Luke mentions here in these couple of verses, Luke mentions two separate times of worship. There's one time or event of worship prior to Paul and Barnabas being set apart by the Holy Spirit. And then there's another time of worship, an event of worship, after they have been set apart for this missionary work. So look there in the text. We read, While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, so there's the first reference to a time of concerted worship. The Holy Spirit set the Holy Spirit said, "Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them." And now Luke records another time of concerted, devoted worship. Then, after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. So they're worshiping, they're fasting. Holy Spirit intervenes. He says, set apart Paul and Barnabas. Then they give themselves to another season of fasting and praying and lay hands on them and they send them off. So here's a church that has a heart for God, a heart to worship God, to know God, to seek God. And it was in the midst of this church, worshiping the Lord and seeking the Lord and praying and going to the Lord, that the Lord sets apart these two men for declaring Christ where he has never been heard. What we see here in this relationship between the church seeking God and then the church being empowered on mission to do the work that God would have them to do, the relationship between these two things, we actually see this in Luke's larger work. So, so Luke, who wrote the book of Acts, also wrote the gospel of Luke. So he wrote the Gospel of Luke, and he wrote the Book of Acts. And when we look at these two books as a whole, we see that Luke establishes this pattern that makes this connection between seeking the Lord in prayer and worshiping Him and then being empowered through that for mission. So let me, let me just point this out to you. In Luke chapter 4, Luke records that Jesus spent 40 days fasting and praying in the wilderness. And then following that extended season of praying and fasting, we read in Luke chapter 4 verse 14, And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and a report about Him went out throughout all the surrounding country, and He taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. And then just a couple of verses later, Luke tells us that Jesus attended the Sabbath in Nazareth. He attended the synagogue on Sabbath in Nazareth, and he read from the book of Isaiah. And these are the words he read. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. Because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor, he has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind and set at liberty those who are oppressed to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. So here we we have the Lord Jesus seeking the Lord in prayer and fasting in the wilderness. He comes out of that time immediately, we're told, that his life, his ministry is characterized by the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, that's in the beginning of Luke's gospel. Then we go to the book of of Acts, and we see a parallel account for the church. So in Acts, we see a parallel account experienced by the early church in Jerusalem. Jesus, in the opening chapters of the book of Acts, He has ascended to the Father. The disciples are gathered together in the upper room. And in Acts chapter 1 verse 14 we read, All these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer, together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus and his brothers. And then just a few verses later in Acts chapter 2 verses 1 and 4, we read the events of Pentecost. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. They were filled with the Holy Spirit. And began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. And then Peter stands up and preaches the gospel and 3,000 souls are converted. So do you see the parallel here? The Lord Jesus is seeking the Lord in the wilderness through prayer and fasting. And as a result, immediately following, we see Luke records that his life and ministry is characterized by the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit. Then we go to the book of Acts. The church is being established here. And what we see is that they are seeking the Lord in prayer. And what happens as a result? The Spirit of God falls upon them. They are empowered by the Spirit. Souls are converted. And the church grows. And so Luke seems to be intentionally making a connection here between the people of God seeking God in worship, and prayer, and then being empowered by His Spirit to do the mission For which he has called them. Just think about this for a moment. What is the work of a missionary? The work of a missionary is to call the nations to be reconciled to God and to worship God through faith in his son, Jesus Christ. But my friends, we will only call others to worship God if we ourselves have been captivated by God's glory. And His grace in the gospel. It's when the gospel grips our own hearts and moves us to worship. That then the Spirit will compel us to call others to join in that worship. And that's what's happening here in the church at Antioch. They are worshiping the Lord. They're seeking the Lord. They're pursuing the Lord. And the Spirit moves among them and it's out of the overflow of that worship as their hearts delight in who God in in his, in his grace in Jesus Christ that they then are compelled to go and to share that good news with others we must always remember my friends that being a faithful sending church is not just about having big vision or wise planning or careful strategies or effective mobilizing All of those things can have their place and be important. But central, foundational, is a heart for God. And Spirit-empowered worship rooted in a biblical understanding of who God is and the grace that He has shown us in Jesus Christ. It is that heart for God and that worship of God that will then compel us to share Christ with others. Notice, fourth and finally, that the church in Antioch was a giving church. It was a giving church. Look there in verses 2 and 3 and we read these words. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. So we see here in our text, in verse 2, that the Holy Spirit made it known that Paul and Barnabas were to be set aside for this work. They, this work, Luke actually uses this language, this work to which he had called them. Now, I want us to just take a few moments here and consider this calling. And one of the things we need to be aware of when we read a book like Acts is, in interpreting a book like Acts, we need to discern between what is unique and non-repeatable, and what is repeatable, what we should follow by way of example. One way to talk about this is what is descriptive and what is prescriptive. So, there are certain things in the book of Acts that are descriptive. They describe certain events that took place. They may be unique one-time events. We're not necessarily, we're not to emulate them or seek to replicate them, just to acknowledge them for what they are. And then there are those things that are recorded in Acts that are prescriptive. They prescribe for us. They set an example for us of something we are to emulate. We are to follow that example and obey. So, an example of something that's descriptive would be like Jesus' ascension into heaven. When we read Jesus' ascension into heaven in Acts chapter 1, we know that we shouldn't respond. The application of that is not to respond by saying, Lord, I just pray this afternoon that you would take me up into the clouds like you did Jesus, right? No, that's describing a one time, unique historical event where Jesus, the Son of God, ascends to the right hand of the Father. But there are other things in the book of Acts that are prescriptive, they are given by way of example, and we should seek to emulate it. Like the church in Antioch here, they're praying, they're seeking the Lord, they're worshiping Him, we should seek to do the same. They're sending out missionaries from their congregation, we should seek to do the same. So as we think about the call of Paul and Barnabas, we have to discern here, what are those things that are unique That are taking place here. And what are those things that are repeatable, those things that we should learn from and by way, follow example? I want to quickly mention there's so much that could be said here, but just quickly mention three principles that I believe we discern here from the Spirit's calling of Paul and Barnabas. The first is this God raises up missionaries and pastors. God raises up missionaries and pastors. Now, there are certain elements here of the call of Paul and Barnabas that are certainly unique and non-repeatable. For example, Paul was called to be an apostle. He saw the resurrected Christ. Jesus spoke to him, called him to be an apostle, and then empowered him to record Holy Scripture for the church. None of us will be called to be an apostle in that way. Having said that, I believe that we can at least discern from this example here in Acts chapter 13 that it is God who, generally speaking, He does in fact call missionaries and pastors. Notice the Spirit here says, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Now what does that look like today? I don't think we should expect to see a vision from God or wait to hear God's audible voice from heaven. You are going to be a missionary. At the same time, I think we have to be careful as well not to assume that this is just kind of a sterile mechanical thing. That a like a church or a pastor can kind of make and manufacture pastors and missionaries if they just put them through the right process. All right, we got this program here at the church, and if you go through this program, when you come out at the end, you'll be a pastor. You'll be a missionary. No, there's something mysterious here, isn't there? Where God must stir in one's heart and give them a, a desire, a burden for the work to which He is calling them. I believe that's the reason why Paul will later on go on in 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1 to say that if one aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. See, that's significant. An overseer is an elder in the church, a pastor. What Paul is saying there is if one wants to be a pastor, there must be that aspiration, there must be that desire for it. And my friends, that is a work of the Holy Spirit. And Perhaps some of you this morning are feeling that aspiration, that desire, that burden. Maybe God is calling me to this work. And that may very well be evidence of the work of the Spirit in your life, calling you to something new, exciting, and glorious. A second principle is this. God affirms that call through the local church. God affirms that call through the local church. Now, it's interesting that the Spirit says here, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. So notice that the Spirit here in this text speaks of the call upon Paul and Barnabas' life in the past tense. For the work to which I have called them. In fact, this morning, Jared read for us from Acts chapter 9, the calling of the Apostle Paul, which took place at his conversion, right? Paul was confronted by the Lord Jesus on the road to Damascus. And then Ananias, the Lord speaking through Ananias, says, He, that is Paul, is my chosen instrument to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and children of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So in one sense we could say in Acts chapter 13, Paul, at least in terms of him being called to be an apostle, he's already been called. The Lord Jesus has appeared to him. The Lord Jesus has spoken to him. And this declaration has been made over his life that he has been called to take the gospel to the nations. But now in Acts chapter 13 what we see is that that calling is being acknowledged and it's being affirmed by and through the local church in Antioch. So God uses the church to affirm that call. So my friends, one of the things we derive from this is that in many ways, as elders here at Crawford Avenue Baptist Church and as a a congregation at Crawford, our job is not to make missionaries and pastors our job is simply to acknowledge and affirm those whom God has already called and gifted to serve in these ways. And so we preach, and we pray, and we disciple, and we invest in people's lives, and we're in relationship with one another. And all along the way, we're just, we've got that little radar up the back of our minds. What's God doing? Who might God be calling in our midst? Who might He be raising up? And we're just looking for that, to discern it. We can't create it. We're just given the responsibility to observe, to discern it, and then to affirm it and encourage it. Third, the third principle. A church's affirmation of one's call involves the church's careful consideration of one's character and giftedness. That's a long one. I'll repeat it again. A church's affirmation of one's call involves the church's careful consideration of one's character and giftedness. And I believe we see this dynamic at play here in the church in Antioch as well. Now, if we just read these first three verses of chapter 13, we might miss it. But if we place it in the larger context of the relationship that existed between the church in Antioch and, the chur- and, and Paul and Barnabas, it becomes much more clear. If we go back to Acts chapter 11, which we've done several times, we see that Paul and Barnabas were not strangers to the church in Antioch. Nor were they novices. That is, they weren't new Christians with a lot of zeal, but very little training or experience. No, from Acts chapter 11, what we see is that Paul and Barnabas lived with and ministered to the church in Antioch for at least a year. And this is amazing. When I first saw this, I was blown away by this. A number of years ago, I I realized this. That when the church in Antioch calls the Apostle Paul, commissions him for what we would consider to be his first official missionary journey, it is some 14 years after his initial conversion. So the space between Acts chapter 9, where Paul is converted, and him being officially sent by the church in Antioch in Acts chapter 13, 14 years. It wasn't like Paul got converted and immediately, boom, he's sent out. There was plenty of time for Paul's life and character and teaching and faithfulness in ministry to be observed and affirmed. This is where I think Paul's directions regarding the qualifications of elders in 1 Timothy and Titus 1 come into play. Where Paul essentially says there through those qualifications, before you appoint an elder, we could say by extension a missionary, examine their life, examine their character, examine their doctrine, examine their giftedness for the work. So listen my friends, if you are here this morning and as I was mentioning before you have that desire, you have some ambition for this work, perhaps to be a pastor or a missionary. That is wonderful. Let me encourage you to discern that call and to seek affirmation of that call in the context of a local church and under the guidance of godly elders who will lead you through that process. Notice this as well. Once they are called... And once this calling is clear to the church, notice what the church does. Essentially, what they do here is they release them. Look there in verse 3. Then after fasting and praying, they laid hands on them and sent them off. Now, keep reading, actually, in verse 4, and notice this. We read, So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went. Now, now what's interesting here is that in verse 3 and in verse 4, both words there are translated as sent. So, the church in Antioch sends them off, and then in verse 4, they are sent out by the Holy Spirit. So, the same word is used in the English translation here, verse 3 and verse 4, but actually, in the Greek, two different words are being used. The word in chapter 13 verse 4 is ek pimpo which means to send out so this is in reference to the holy spirit and his work here and it seems what, what paul's saying here the work of the holy spirit is to call and to send out but then in chapter 13 verse 3 the word is a different word it's apaluo which means to loose or to release now now it's fine to say that the Spirit sent them out and the church sent them out. That's true. But it does seem that Luke may be making a distinction here, a more precise distinction, that it is the work of the Spirit to call them and to send them out, and then it is the work of the church, once they have been called by the Spirit, to release them. And that's what the church of Antioch does they released them. In other words, their mentality was not, these men are too valuable for our congregation. Have you ever heard Paul teach? We can't let this guy go. Barnabas has been here from the beginning. When we were a young, floundering church and we didn't know which way was up or down, Barnabas was the one who came and established the church. We can't let this guy get away from us. No, when the Spirit moved and when the Spirit called, they were generous and they released them. They released them to the work to which God had called them. They chose to be generous with their best and their brightest, with their most gifted and able, with their most energetic and fruitful. I love James Boyce's comment on this point. James Boyce, who was a Christian pastor, he writes this, quote, if a seminary graduate is of average gifts, we think he should pastor a church. If he has above average gifts, we think he should pastor a large church. But if he has exceptional gifts, we think he should teach in a seminary. I say in schools of theology that this is not the way it should be. In my view, the worst should teach The more gifted men should pastor churches, and the very best should be missionaries. That may be a slight exaggeration, but I think Acts 13 does give us insight into the mind of God in this area, end of quote. All that to say, we should not withhold our best, our brightest, our most gifted, our most energetic, but by the grace of God, may He give us a generous spirit like the church here in Antioch to give even our best, so that the nations might hear the name of Christ. Ellie Paul Hill and Ellie Nelson, this is what we intend to do this morning. We intend, and we will be with you and walk with you and support you and love you through this process, but we intend to release you for this work for which God is sending you to do. And it's the Spirit sends you I want to just just give you two quick encouragements. As the Spirit sends you, I want to encourage you that He will go with you. We actually see that here in our text. We see it with Paul and Barnabas. You see, in in verse, uh, is it three? The Spirit sends them, right? Verse four, actually. The Spirit sends them. But then if you go a little bit further down in the passage... We see that Paul and Barnabas make their way to the island of Cyprus and they're preaching the gospel in Cyprus and they're facing opposition. And we read in verse 9 that Paul was filled with the Holy Spirit. You see, the Spirit who had sent him is now with him and empowering him for the work. And the Spirit will do the same for you. He is sending you and he will go with you and he will empower you for all that he intends for you to do. And then the second encouragement is this. When you come back home, we, your church home, will be here to welcome you back and to rejoice in all that God has done. And we also see that with Paul and Barnabas. Actually, we read through their first missionary journey in Acts 13 and then in Acts 14. And at the end of Acts 14, their first missionary journey is complete. And we read in Acts chapter 14, verse 26, and from there they sailed to Antioch. In other words, they went home where they had been commended to the grace of God for the work that they had fulfilled. And when they arrived, they gathered the church together and they declared all that God had done with them and how He had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles and they remained no little time with the disciples. And ladies, we look forward to that day when after serving your term in Southeast Asia, the Lord returns you here to Crawford Avenue and we will be here to welcome you back and eager to hear all that the Lord has done. The church in Antioch was an effective, faithful, sending church in part because they were a diverse church, they were a teaching church, they were a worshiping church, they were a giving church. Again, Andy Johnson in his little book on missions, he writes these words just trying to describe what a faithful, effective, sending church might look like. He writes these words, quote, Imagine a local church where the congregation's mission to the nations is clear and agreed upon. Elders give the congregation, or elders guide the congregation, towards strategic missions. Missions is held up as a concern for all Christians, not just the niche missions group. The tyranny of new trends and demands for immediate visible results holds no sway. Members see missions as the work of the church together, rather than the personal private activity of an individual. In this church, members see missions as a core activity of the church, not an occasional short-term project. Relationships with missionaries are deep, serious, and lasting. Joyful giving to missions is a basic part of the church's budget, not merely the fruit of occasional and desperate appeals. And members actually value missions enough that some want to uproot their lives and be sent out long-term by the church, end of quote. My friends, by God's grace, I believe that He is building such a church here at Crawford Avenue. The Spirit of God is at work among us. Let's praise Him for that. Let's pray that He would protect that and preserve that, and that He would grow that for His glory. Let's pray. Father, we are so grateful for Your grace to save us and redeem us through Your Son, Jesus Christ. And then, Lord, to gather us together as one, as Your church, to live together, to encourage one another, to disciple one another in the faith. And then, Father, grace upon grace to allow us to be a part of Your purpose and plan of redemption to save a people for yourself from every tribe and tongue and language and nation. Father, we do thank you for the work of your Spirit among us. Lord, we want to rejoice in that work, and we also want to humbly acknowledge that it is not our doing, but it is your doing, and we want to give you all the praise and honor and glory. And we pray, Father, that as You have worked among us, that You would continue to do so, that You would protect what You are doing here at Crawford Avenue, that You would protect us from false teaching, from division, from disunity, that You would give us a greater knowledge and love for Your Word and for the gospel, a greater love for one another, greater clarity in terms of Your global mission and a deeper commitment to that mission. So, Father, come now, even as we rejoice in this day and rejoice in commissioning the Ellies to go to Southeast Asia. Come now by your Spirit and continue to work and move and do your good work. And we will give you all the glory and all the praise. And it's through Jesus Christ, our Lord, we ask it. Amen.